This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Today we're discussing Central Florida's media landscape and its culinary and music scenes. I reached out to some of the guests who I've spoken to on Intersection over the past 10 years, inviting them back to talk about what's changed and what's new. We're going to start with a closer look at the news media in Central Florida. Well, joining me is Rick Brunson. He's a senior journalism instructor at the Nicholson School of Communication and Media at the University of Central Florida. Thanks so much for stopping by. Matt, I'm honored to be on your show. Thank you. Well, you've been part of Central Florida's media uh, scene for quite some time now, Rick, both as a reporter and uh, more recently as a teacher. I wonder, just kind of thinking about Central Florida journalism, what do you think defines it? Wow. Uh, what defines it, we're multimedia, obviously, in discipline and approach. You have a lot of strong um, media brands here, whether it's uh, the Orlando Sentinel or 269-1335. Um, nothing really happens much here uh, without a reporter uh, knowing about it, uh, and that includes your fine staff here at WMFE and, uh, our, and, and our public media outlets. So, uh, there's there are a lot of journalists and a, good, a lot of good journalists on the street keeping tabs on things. It's it's interesting. I mean, I've been here uh, reporting in Central Florida for 11 years now, and um, it's it's a very busy media environment. It seems like a lot of big national, international stories somehow have roots and tendrils that make their way to Central Florida, and that can be challenging, right? Because you're trying to you're trying to sort of report on the nitty gritty local stuff, but there's big national stories that collide here in, in Orlando as well. There's kind of a joke in newsrooms here that you, there's a Florida angle or, or a central Florida angle for any story in the world because mm-hmm. the world literally comes here. They come here for vacation. They come here to travel. They come here to take in the beaches and, and our beautiful environment and all that we have to offer here. But, you know, Florida geographically and historically has always been uh, a state where people are running from something, Right. Um, in the past, we've had loose bankruptcy laws. We've had uh, this is Florida is a good place to come out and hide and reinvent yourself if you're running from something somewhere else. Mm-hmm. I mean, even our Native American population here, the, the Seminole Indians, aren't originally from here, right? Everybody from in Florida is from somewhere else, or they've come here from somewhere else. So you have rich patterns of immigration. You have uh, lots of folks here from from all over. And then pile all of that into uh, issues of housing, density, pressure on the environment, immigration, uh, and it all makes for a a really interesting place to be a journalist. A year or so back, I talked with you on the show about a local journalism project you were launching with your students focusing on the politics of Winter Park. How's that project going? Yeah, so since then, uh, it started, winterparksunshine.org started as a data journalism project where we uh, collected, curated, cleaned, and made searchable data related to the activities of the municipal government in Winter Park, whether uh, that has to do with campaign contributions or action items, how commissioners are voting, um, the voter profile of what voters, uh, what what the voting population looks like in Winter Park. So it was very data-driven. But flash forward to a year, we have moved into, and this is something that is near and dear to your heart, we've uh, moved into launching a podcast. So there's now a Winter Park Sunshine podcast. And this semester, my students have done podcast episodes on, uh, there were two open seats 
on the Winter Park City Commission, seat three and seat four. We interviewed and profiled those candidates on the podcast. Land use is a huge issue in in Winter Park. Uh, we've devoted an, uh, an episode to that. Policing, uh, as in as in a lot of cities, policing is has been an issue. Uh, Winter Park's police chief recently resigned and uh, was replaced by uh, a, a new chief mm-hmm. who was promoted within the department. Um, so we have one on policing. And then there's some other arts and culture issues that we've looked at. Uh, and and the, the students just love the format of podcasting and reporting with audio. And I love teaching it. Back to the podcast, too. You've taken a bit more of an interest in audio reporting of late, right, Rick? I mean, I think you, you come from a more um, print and then television background, but you've you've really dug into that with your students and, and sort of the nuances of audio. Uh, what's that journey been like for you? I love audio reporting. I've been a longtime fan of not only this station, uh, but NPR News for many, many, for decades. And so I've always been a fan, but it has been uh, since 2019 uh, when I got involved with NPR News Next Gen Radio Project, where uh, Doug Mitchell uh, puts together a group of radio journalists and journalism professors who literally go around the country and identify and train and teach the next generation of audio journalists. And being involved with that program has been just the highlight of my of the, the past two years of my career. And through that, um, learning how to work with audio and, and how to pick up a microphone and a Marantz deck or a, a Zoom audio kit and hit the street and tell stories with sound has been amazing. I mean... Audio journalism, as you know, it's a, it may sound like a cliche, but it, it brings a, a certain theater of the mind. Mm-hmm. You have those driveway moments with people as they sit in their car and they listen to engaging stories told through sound. So it's been fun to teach it. It's been fun to do it. I spent my spring break over at uh, WUSF in Tampa reporting an assignment for them. Uh, it's It's been fun. And it kind of takes me back full circle, if you'll indulge me. Just a quick second. When I was a little kid, sure. my parents gave me a Sony a uh, reel-to-reel small tape recording uh, tape recorder, hmm. and I would go around the neighborhood and, with a microphone and interview neighbors and friends about whatever they were, they were doing that day. And so the very first kind of reporting that I was ever introduced to was audio reporting, and now I'm 61 and I'm kind of coming back full circle to it professionally, and it's been a blast. Wow, so that's what gave you the bug, huh? Yep. That's amazing. If you're just joining me, I'm speaking with Rick Brunson, uh, journalism instructor, senior journalism instructor at UCF. We're talking about the state of the media in central Florida. Just on that note too, Rick, I mean, the great resignation, the so-called great resignation, is, which has swept through the American workforce in the last couple of years, has kind of been going on in the media for a, a bit longer than that, hasn't it? And I wonder how you see that shaking out. Like, is it just going to be an, a, a never-ending stream of... Uh, you know, reshuffles within the, the journalism workforce? Or do you think we'll reach an equilibrium point at some, you know, time in the future where journalism organizations with their legacy organizations like the big newspapers and television stations kind of, they say, this is this is how we make this sustainable going forward? Or do you see that just dwindling further? Well, I, I hope we reach some point of stasis. I'll, I'll tell you, Matt, what worries me at, at night is the economic state of the news industry, mm-hmm. especially in the last 10 years where 
you see more and more private equity companies, hedge funds buying up. It used to be print newspapers, but now we're seeing uh, this buying activity going on in the broadcast sector, too, where private equity funds, hedge funds uh, are, are buying up TV stations and radio stations. And a lot of times uh, these companies aren't necessarily driven first and foremost by journalistic values. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're companies, so mm-hmm. they're trying to maximize as much profit. They cut a lot of costs. That usually means cutting people. Sometimes that means cutting some of your most experienced people, and that's not good. And, and you know, with the digitization, and it's, it's reality. I mean, digital news is how we get most of our news now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our, the face of our smartphone is our front page. So, but that digital product requires constant, constant, constant content creation. And, uh, you know, what we're seeing with some of our most talented, some of our most dedicated journalism grads is they're going into the reality of this industry where there is a a constant uh, amount of content creation across all platforms. uh, And a lot of good young journalists are burning out and they're moving on to uh, industries and sectors such as marketing, public relations that they perceive to be a little bit more stable Hmm. and a little maybe less demanding. Uh, And we're, and, and that worries me because we're losing some really good young journalists um, who, you know, you used to make that move when you were 40. Now they're making it from 25 to 30. And that concerns me. On the pandemic, too, what do you think the legacy of the pandemic uh, will be on journalism long term? And I wonder if you're seeing like a new crop of journalism students interested in sorting through data and trying to make sense of complex medical or scientific or even political stories. That's really uh, interesting. I could give you some numbers. We're bursting at the seams in our in our program. And I, I know, you know, with, with some of the negatives that I've talked about here in terms of what's facing the journalism industry, right, you would think students would, would hear that, read that because they're savvy and run the other way. We've got 192 journalism majors in the Nicholson School, uh, 98 that want to uh, be digital print journalists and another 93 or four or so that want to be broadcast journalists. And then we have another 72 what we call journalism pending students who are, are students who've raised their hands and said, I want to get in this program if you'll let me in and if my GPA is high enough. So we're bursting at the seams for students who want to do this. Not all of them are interested in data. We're trying to get more of them interested in data. I would say the ones who form an interest in in data, understanding data, visualizing it, showing people how to understand it, will be able to write their own ticket uh, for their for their first job if they show some interest in that because data is the coin of the realm. So we teach it, but you know we have students who are interested in a lot of different things. A lot of them are interested in sports mm-hmm. journalism. A lot of them are interested in arts and cultural issues. Um, a few are interested in politics, uh, but their interests are, are wide and they vary. Uh, what I try to get interest in that there's, there's, I would say, a minority of students are interested in is good, hard, investigative reporting where right. we dig up new information. We act as a watchdog. We serve as a check on what politicians and government leaders do with our tax money and how they act in our name. 
I'd like to get more students involved in that kind of reporting. But that kind of reporting is hard. Uh, it takes a sustained commitment. And uh, I've got a few. I call them my SEAL Team 6. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, most students are not interested in that kind of reporting. This is kind of a big one, Rick, but, you know, the, the, and we've talked about the sort of dynamism of this place as a place to be a reporter, just a, you know, a growing, a rapidly growing city of Orlando and the surrounding area. If you had to pick one story that has really defined the last decade of journalism in Central Florida, what do you think it would be? Wow. You know, one of my degrees is in history, so I like to, to take the long view. But, uh, I mean, there's a couple of them, environmental impact. Obviously, people come to Florida because of its environment. They come here for the beach. Mm-hmm. They come here for uh, all of the the sunshine and the, and the and the beautiful environment we have. Uh, and and that environment is is threatened by climate change. I mean, we we've got rising sea levels here in Florida. We have you know over a thousand manatees dying just in 2021 alone for starvation uh, for for crying out loud. Mm-hmm. I mean, we got algae. Runoff choking our waterways. Manatees can't eat the seagrass at the bottom because the sunlight can't get to it. I mean, it's we've got uh, you know all of us are impacted by the environment. All of us are impacted by water. You have cities suing each other over water rights because uh, a city can't grow uh, and it can't grow its tax base if it can't have enough sewer and water hookups. So uh, the environment long term view is huge. I would say, you know, more short term, the COVID-19 pandemic is having all kind of ramifications on education, um, on the economy, uh, certainly, and on just another big thing that I would say that are, are is front of mind for a lot of my students that they talk a lot about in class and when they come in to my office, and that's mental health. Hmm. Mental health is a huge, huge issue uh, for all of us. Um, Coming out of this pandemic, it was big before, but you, you know, for a, a long time in in this county, the largest uh, p- the largest place to get mental health or treatment, the largest mental health treatment facility, was the Orange County Jail. Yeah, uh, Florida has traditionally not put out a lot of money or invested much in mental health, and I think that's more front of mind uh, for a lot of people. And I'll tell you, it's really front of mind. Uh, for a lot of my students, uh, for their own mental health and for for those uh, that they love and their families. So uh, that's going to be a huge issue going forward that we, we will continue to deal with, I think. Well, uh, Rick Brunson, Senior Journalism Instructor at the Nicholson School of Communication and Media at the University of Central Florida. Always a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. I want to thank you, Matt, for 10 years, a decade of the public service that you've provided to the listeners and citizens of Central Florida through your work as a journalist through this public affairs show intersection. You've been a a wonderful friend personally, professionally, and I wish you Godspeed as you move on your new role. Thank you, sir. Still to come, Central Florida's culinary scene is booming. We'll talk with a panel of chefs, educators, and food writers about the latest food trends in Orlando. That's when Intersection returns. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Some years ago, Central Florida was not necessarily seen as a culinary destination, but that's changed in the last 10 years. For more on what makes the culinary scene here unique and the latest food trends, I invited a panel of chefs and food writers to join the show. 
Well, Emily Allen is a chef and culinary educator and Food Network star. Emily, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me on your last show. We're also joined by Hari Pulapaka, CEO and founder at the Global Cooking School and Associate Professor of Mathematics at Stetson University. Harry, nice to have you back again. Great to be here, Matthew. And there's no anyone can do all of that well enough, so thanks for that intro. And Ricky Lee is the publisher of Tasty Chomps Food and Restaurant blog. Ricky, thanks as well. Thank you, Matt. And Fires Cara, restaurant critic at the Orlando Weekly. Thank you, too. Thank you, Matt. Great to be here. Ricky, I want to start with you. We talked to you um, some years ago, 2015, in fact, as part of a series focused on Little Vietnam in Orlando. What have you seen in that particular part of the uh, kind of culinary landscape of Orlando since then? Have you really seen the the Vietnamese and South Asian food um, scene change significantly since uh, 2015? Wow, yeah, that's a great question, Uh, Matt. Um, Especially this year uh, with all the new developments coming to the Mills 50 era, Mm -hmm. you kind of see the second, third generation of the Vietnamese immigrants, uh, you know, the children of the old market owners and the restaurant owners taking over the space and kind of transforming Mills 50. Um, I think it all started with Tori Tori by Chef Sonny Nguyen over there with the beautiful facade that they have and architecture. And there's going to be more uh, coming um, from the folks behind uh, Maki Bachi, uh, Chef Ma- uh, not Chef, but the owner, Mike Nguyen, is uh, opening up a kind of like a speakeasy mm-hmm. style like bar there and um and so that's taken over uh what used to be you know uh little markets and and maybe uh a bun me shop and things like that so it's definitely transforming i think mills 50 is still very much the heart of um you know the asian kind of immigrant mm-hmm. kind of ex- food experience but obviously there's little pockets everywhere west orlando um in the chinatown plaza near pine hills there's lots of different you know, Chinese cuisines going on there and, and East Orlando now too. They're, it's almost like they're branching out into um, different pockets um, that aren't being served. Mm-hmm. Uh, Harry, you've gone from a restaurateur to more of a chef educator role. Um, but just kind of thinking back to your time uh, running a restaurant kitchen, what, what did sort of that experience teach you about the, I guess, the tastes of the diners in Central Florida? Um, so, Matthew, I, I think, you know, a colleague of mine that Stetson pointed out to me like a year ago, you know, he actually asked me, so, Harry, what's it like now that you're not a chef anymore? So, funny, funny you mentioned that my role as a chef has changed from being an active kitchen-bound chef to one of being an educator. I think, if anything, I have more time to pay attention to what, what people are kind of interested in food and things like that. And, and from what I've seen in the past few years, certainly the proliferation of quote-unquote, plant-based cuisine uh, mm-hmm. is is one of focus. I, I can't yet say that they're very successful, but they're certainly trying. Um, and beyond that, I think there's been a, you know, thanks to the last two and a half years or so, there's been a de-emphasis on fussy cuisine, I, would, I guess really upscale tasting menus and things like that, except for a few options. Most of the restaurants are trying to find the middle of, you know, accessible food that tastes good with lots of acid and global influences and mid-price range and things like that. So I don't want to call them fast casual necessarily, but I do feel like the because of a number of reasons, and we'll get into that, I'm sure, uh, kitchens just aren't able to sustain that kind of fussy, um, I say fussy in a good way, fussy in terms of paying attention to everything mm-hmm. uh, kind of cuisine. So from what I can tell, I feel like, I feel like the diversity is 
increasing in some ways, but there's also, I think, a uniformity that's happening. Food is kind of coming together in a in a broader highway, if that makes sense. Um, Emily, let me bring you into this conversation. You know, we're still in a pandemic, technically, mm-hmm. uh, but we've really spent the last two years and the, the worst of it. What impact has that had on, you know, the way you work uh, as a chef and just kind of on the food scene in general, do you think? Obviously, it had an immediate impact when restaurants had to shut down for a time. Do you see some lasting kind of impacts from that, though? Yeah, a- absolutely. And I think one of the segments that we failed to really talk about is the catering and event space. I feel like that was one of the most hard hit um, scenes Mm -hmm. in our industry. And um, though in our industry, we're very resilient, strong, um, creative humans who rallied together. So um, earlier today, I mean, we could we could go on about how the pandemic like has destroyed us. And um, uh, I think one of, what we should be talking about is kind of the phoenixes that mm. rose from the ashes, right? And Well, there, there were some restaurants that opened up right in the middle of it, right? Absolutely. And like Ricky Lee and I were just talking about before we um, came on air, there was a really good example in College Park, Tornatores. We, we enjoyed the fact that there was a small bakery, Sugar Buzz, and... Um, they would not have made it through the pandemic without the collaborative efforts of Tornatories bringing them in and having them do the desserts for the restaurant and then opening almost a food hall, if you will. And it's like a um, a market that they created to make fresh pastas and desserts and more Italian-focused um, grab-and-go options. So I think those stories are what we should really be talking about. And... Um, also, just the resilience of, like, for instance, that uh, catering segment, how they started supplying grab-and-go or ready-to-eat meals that the public could just purchase instead of just catering events and, mm. and what have you, what they did before. Fires, Cara, you've led the charge on advocating for Orlando's identity as sort of a bona fide food destination with a wealth of interesting dining options outside of the chain restaurants that people might think about if they think of the tourism scene, do you still feel like there's a you, you have the need to defend Orlando's culinary reputation? Not anymore, but uh, before we get into that, Matthew, you know, the four of us, we wanted to present you yes. with a gift of a durian. <laughs> durian for all. Durian for all. I mean, I don't know if the public realizes the big things that are coming in Matthew's life after... Well, the durian is is the first thing because first because like the durian, Matthew, you're a little bit prickly. You're yep. I don't know, somewhat bulbous, I suppose. And uh, you know, I've been wanting to tell you this for a long time, but Matthew, <laughs> I'm banned uh, on mass transit in many countries. Yes, yeah, take a shower. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should note to our listeners too. I I um put the foot down and said the durian can't come into the studio. It's sitting in the newsroom at a... We're crushed. Right we are it's crushed. On, it's on the crushed. Desk. Because I thought Matthew was running for president. Nobody told me. I know I'm blonde and uh, <laughs> the last one to hear about this. He's got my vote. He's got my vote. Durian for all. I thought that was your campaign slogan. Yeah, well, I, and for people who may not know, um, Fires <laughs> and I actually <laughs> had a durian experience a few years ago. Um, it was a frozen durian, though, so it's probably a little less pungent than the uh, the ripe, unfrozen variety of the fruit. But it Correct. Is, mm. I mean, it's a it's an interesting 
specimen, I guess. But people go crazy for durian. Like, there's, it's a kind of a cult fruit. And um, it's true. And it, you and you were talking about identity, Orlando's identity, <laughs> right. and food identity. And personally, as far as trends are concerned, because I think that's the, uh, the the motif of the show. I, I, for one, want to start a durian trend. You know, we're talking yeah. about, you know, there's all these tasting-only concepts that are opening up. But, you know, I think a lot of these chefs need to incorporate the durian into their tasting menus. We want to see uh, durian and cocktails. We want Absolutely. to see, yeah, we or want mocktails. to see durian or mocktails and tacos. Low, low alcohol trends. I mean, it fits into every trend. It pairs well with spice, mm-hmm. and spice is hitting trends. I think you should be Matthew's vice presidential. Uh, I am. And mate. our um, campaign chief, Hari, would actually like sure, to Sure, if I may right. add some hashtags to this. Yes, movement. please. Yes. yes, please. So hashtag sober curious oh. and hashtag durian curious. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I love I'm this. in. I'm in. Matthew for president. Matthew for president. Yep. Durian for all. Hari, let me ask you about durian then. What's your experience been of durian? I'm uh, a big fan and uh, well-versed with jackfruit. Mm-hmm. And some might even refer to me as a jack of many trades. I mean, it's a it's but, a versatile fruit, right? You can you can cook the seeds as a vegetable. It's it's a it's got everything you could ask for. Really. And, and interesting, you say mention the seeds because I, I think the jackfruit seed is the most uh, prized part of the jackfruit when roasted, you know, properly mm. and salted properly and seasoned properly. It was a treat growing up. Durian, I don't have any experience with. <laughs> really, you've never tried durian? I've never tried durian, but I would be I would be willing to. That's about uh, curate a Dorian Crudo <laughs> first course. We have Ooh, one on the premises. Yes. We have one on the premises. We have a knife. Beep, and beep, I beep, think... beep, beep. Coming in live. We need a taste of durian for Hari. Beep, 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 beep. Okay, well, we'll, um, we'll attend to that afterwards. <laughs> if you're just joining me, I'm talking with Emily Allen, Hari Pula-Parker, Ricky Lee and Fires Car about uh, Central Florida's uh, food trends. So... Ricky, going back to the food neighborhoods of Central Florida, and you were talking a little bit about how, you know, we have Mills 50 in Orlando, which is a hub for Vietnamese and Asian cuisine. Uh, Many of the restaurants and supermarkets, of course, that we explored as part of our series with WMFE back in 2015 Mm. came about because of particular waves of migration to Orlando. Are you seeing some other cultures kind of set their mark in in Central Florida now and sort of bringing with them their unique food culture? You know, a couple of years ago, there was a big... Brazilian food trend, mm-hmm. um, like Brazilian pizza places, you know, and not not just the uh, steakhouses, you know, but mm-hmm. you know, those two. But yeah, <laughs> I've definitely seen more and more um, little Brazilian spots pop, p- picking up. Um, let's see, what else? What yeah, 14 Bis Pizzeria, which is this aviation themed pizza pizzeria. It's very, it's a very cool interior. But the pizzas, Brazilian pizzas, I have to say. Are they have a sweet crust, and mm-hmm. and for those who aren't used to eating Brazilian pizzas, that's uh, you know that's it's a, it's a new uh, flavor dimension that enters your uh, you know your pizza domain when you when you bite into one. Right. There's that uh, Miss Potato mm-hmm. uh, shop that's also owned by right. Brazilian. There's um, a lot of Brazilian. Yeah. Not just pizza. I think uh, vegan vegetarian is really kind of. Uh, hitting our our landscape hard mm-hmm. and not necessarily a cultural influence that that just kind of like melds in with the different crossroads i will say this speaking of trends and cultural trends now i would be remiss to talk about whenever uh there is war and conflict in the world we will see an uptick and resurgence of the cuisines from those um countries in conflict. Mm. So I I predict that we're going to see borscht and 
different. Borscht everywhere. Borscht well, everywhere. <laughs> Borscht everywhere. But I believe we're going to have some Ukrainian and Russian dishes that are going to surface in fundraisers, and mm. then it's going to catch on. What would you say then, aside from the sort of vegan vegetarian, are you seeing some other things kind of pop up in the in the culinary landscape that you wouldn't have expected? Well, not that I wouldn't expect. I believe um, because we uh, COVID, the influence of COVID has made us very um, conscious about what we consume. Like we want to go out and have, well, maybe I should say how we consume. We want to go out and have an experience. And then when we go out, we want something special. So then that what is something a little um, unique that we can't just create at home as we're all now experts you know, as Ari mentioned, or uh, order order in. So I think we're going to, uh, we're looking for experiences. Mm-hmm. We're looking for the cresses mm-hmm. of the world. Come back, come back, my friend. And um, and then I, I'm not shocked by it, but I, I feel like the segment above fast food, you know, that what fast is casual, fast casual, if mm-hmm. you will. Yeah, that is, that is such a growing market. And this was a very easy, um, market to capitalize on. You know, it was easy to grab and go. It was easy to go. It, it's affordable. You know, you can still get something a little different that you're going to make at home. And so, like, we have a lot of barbecues. We have a lot of um, noodle shops and, you know, um, We're going to see tacos. a whole lot more chicken places, too. I mean, there's going to be a proliferation uh, yeah. of chicken mm-hmm. joints opening up Fried this year. Fried chicken. Well, they're taking too. they're they're taking advantage of the uh, Nashville hot chicken trend. Yeah, and is, so is that what you're saying very... with the likes of like Chicken Guy mm-hmm. and other? Yeah, but we'll places. see more. We'll see newer ones. We'll see Chicken Cone. You know, we'll see variations mm-hmm. of that of that theme. You know, taking fried chicken and. You know, people putting their own spin spin on it. Yeah, there's and, already a chicken strip district in Wind Park with all the different. Uh, that's right. <laughs> that's the true. chicken strip district. <laughs> now, I noticed that restaurateurs, younger chefs, and you know, uh, are becoming more business savvy. In that, I'm seeing many of them uh, attempt to and even succeed in opening multiple concepts and multiple locations. And mm-hmm. that's not something that I was seeing as much of perhaps the past 15 years. Hmm. But I'm seeing more and more that restaurants are opening up new concepts and and multiple concepts because they understand that to really make a living, you kind of need more revenue. And having just one location with 50 seats doesn't quite cut it. So that's that's a business savvy that I think is, is good. And mm-hmm. I, I'm noticing, I'm not, I wouldn't call it a trend, but I'm noticing that. I've talked to each of you at various times over the last decade on this show on Intersection and one thing that stands out is that Orlando in that time, I think, really seems to be coming into its own as a food city and a culinary destination. So I want to ask each of you, what defines the food scene, if at all, in Orlando and Central Florida? Fires, what do you think? Our diversity. Mm-hmm. I think our, our scene is getting, at least over the past decade, increasingly diverse, and that's something uh, I'm particularly proud of as, mm-hmm. a, as an Orlando resident, just to see the, the wealth of... Um, of options. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about all the different neighborhoods. You know, Mills 50, of course, is uh, arguably the most diverse neighborhood in our city. But then, like Ricky was mentioning earlier, East Orlando out by UCF, there's a lot of different uh, varieties of restaurants there from Taiwanese to Szechuan to mm-hmm. uh, Halal uh, halal Fair. You know, it runs the gamut. Um, so that's that's the one thing that I'm most proud of and one that I really want to uh, promote when mm-hmm. I write. 
Yeah, absolutely. Emily, what do you think? No, I'll second that. And then I will also say not only is our food scene evolving, so is our beverage scene. Mm-hmm. And um, from every, from alcohol to crafted mocktails to coffee and teas, I, I think we're we're really excelling in all all areas. Just on the the note of drinks too, Harry uh, mentioned the idea of something sober curious before, which is I mean that's that's kind of an evolving mm-hmm. scene, right? The mm-hmm. the mocktails, the um, people who want to sort of take a break from alcohol for a bit, if it's a month or maybe longer than that. It is, uh, and um, shameless plug, I'm part of a company that does cold brew teas, and that's the essential concept behind that line, is to promote it for itself, for itself, but also in cocktails. And so Sober Curious is something I picked up in the marketing language of that company. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it's, it's, you know, I, I've gone through my own stages of backing off and sometimes not having at all. Um, and as a restaurateur, as a full-time chef and educator, I've beaten myself up quite a bit on those lines for the past decade. Mm-hmm. And uh, recent doctor's visits have told me that perhaps that was not a good idea. And so now I'm trying um, with some success in backing off and not always celebrating with an alcoholic beverage, but sometimes just celebrating. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, physical health is paramount. I mean, without physical health, I mean, nothing else really matters, right? Mm-hmm. We know this. We know this in a number of ways. Ricky, what do you think defines the food scene in Orlando and Central Florida? Yeah, you know, like we talk about culture, right, you know, uh, and tradition, but that is always changing, transforming, mixing when we interact with others. Um, and so that really, I think that's kind of Orlando in a nutshell. 50 years ago, um, you know, Disney World celebrates 50 years this mm-hmm. past year or so, and um, that would have been totally different. But over the years, Immigrants from all over the world have made Orlando their home, and, and not just the world, but you know America itself. And actually, right now, there's a huge migration coming in from all over the U.S. as well. So I think it'll continue to transform. I think people um, have found a way to start up their food businesses, even on Instagram. There is that Brad's Underground Pizza place that now is inside a ghost kitchen, and mm-hmm. you know what else is new. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I feel like that's what. Orlando really is kind of where it's always on the move. I mean, you look at the scene at the turn of the millennium, right? It was, I mean, our scene before when people were asked to describe Orlando's food scene, they would just immediately say, oh, it's the chain capital of the world. Mm. But I don't think we can say that anymore. Well, um, I want to thank you all for joining me. I've been speaking with uh, Fires Cara, restaurant critic at the Orlando Weekly. Fires, thank you. Thank you, Matthew, and all the best in your future during-related endeavors. (laughs) Ricky Lee, publisher of Tasty Chomps Food and Restaurant blog. Ricky, thank you so much, too. Thank you, Matt. Uh, thank you so much for all the years of stories and all you've done here. And look forward to following you um, at your next uh, step. Harry Parker is the CEO and founder at the Global Cooking School and Associate Professor of Mathematics at Stetson University. Harry, always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, Matthew. It's always a pleasure. And uh, hopefully even when you move to where you're going, uh, we'll get a chance to be in a kitchen one day and you'll be shooting over my shoulder something that I'm making and then pretend to enjoy it after the fact. <laughs> we also spoke with Emily Allen, chef and culinary educator and Food Network star. Thanks as well. Thank you for having me, Matt. Up next, with pandemic restrictions loosened, Orlando Americana band BMO are back on the road again. We'll talk with them about performing in Austin, Texas, getting one of their songs on a movie soundtrack and plans for a new album.
This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. On today's show, we're discussing Central Florida's media landscape and its culinary and music scenes. I reached out to some guests I've spoken to on Intersection over the last 10 years, inviting them back to talk about what's changed and what's new. BMO first appeared on Intersection in 2015, and since then they've continued to hone their Americana-influenced sound. Just back from a tour of Austin, Texas, BMO returned to our studios at WMFE. They began by performing a new song written during the pandemic. Hi, uh, we're BMO, and this is a song called Jokers, Jacks, and Fiends. And, um, well, it's about a lot of the craziness that we've seen over the last couple of years. Jacks and beans. Oh, take care where you go. That holy water. Not between these jokers, Jacks and beans. 
Jacks and Fiends. Hop between these jokers, Jacks and Fiends. Vimo, uh, Dan Harshbarger, Tony Mickle, Matt Giuliano, and Sean Patrick Quinn. And of course, typically Justin Braun would be with you, but yeah, uh, couldn't make it out this time, unfortunately. But anyway, you've you've just come back from um, Texas, uh, performing in Austin, and it's not your first visit to that city, right? So just tell me a little bit about um, the experience this time around. How was it? Well, it was uh, it was a little different this time. Last time we we were part of a panel discussion with South by Southwest. Tony and I were, and I would say South by was booming then. Um, I think the yes. pandemic had took its toll on. Uh, I guess on the attendance in uh, mostly from the international scene, I would say. Yes. Uh, a lot of U.S. folks out and about, but um, but yeah, it seemed a little little bit yeah. uh, subdued this time. Yeah, it looked like mm-hmm. they were missing folks from Australia, um, South Korea. I mean, like all yeah. over. It just um, wasn't the international presence wasn't like there, time. and we feel like the pandemic had a major impact. And after talking to a few of the folks that run the local bars and the local everything, that's what seemed to happen. So. The pandemic is still sort of impacting cities, but we mm-hmm. saw it firsthand. And it's, um, but it, I think it'll recover. I think everything's slowly coming back, though. What's it been like in general, though? Because you, you've kind of ramped up your live performances a bit in the last sort of few months, right? Since you had to scale things back because of the pandemic. So, what, what's it like getting out again and performing after the pandemic? Is it different so, in some way? So, Matt, you want to take that? It is a little bit different. Um, you know, a couple months ago, we were still, you know, we were kind of more trepidatious about about doing it, you know, both, you know, optics and safety-wise. We were, mm-hmm. you know, we'd play, we'd play masked up. And that's starting to ease up now since the Omicron wave passed. Um, yeah, we actually played in masks for SeaWorld and it made the Sentinel and there's JB on the cover with like, his mask. I'm like, what the heck? So that was yeah, that was a, that JB, was that dynamic. JB needed oxygen. Exactly. Uh-huh. It was hard for a drummer to wear with a mat or play with a mask, and hard, harder for a singer to sing with a mask on. But we got through it. Yeah, yeah. I think I think we made it through. Right. I mean, we took the the time off that we couldn't play. We were you know still getting together and still writing and still practicing. Mm-hmm. Added, we added a bunch to the repertoire. So I, I think it was you know we made we made the best of it. I want to ask too about a track that you had on a Sean Baker film. The film was called Red Rocket. And I think that came out last year, right? So what sort of feedback have you gotten from that? Yeah, so uh, we when we got selected, of course, we were uh, pleasantly surprised. Um, but in order to uh, – we, we didn't really have any confirmation that it was actually in the film. Yes. <laughs> uh, so I was able to score a couple of tickets to the New York Film Festival and, and grab Tony, and we flew up there for, for a quick, quick day turnaround. But we were able to uh, verify we were in the film – and uh, after the film, we were actually able to meet up with the co-star, um, Brie, what was her last Brie, name? Uh, Larson. 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 Yeah, Brie Larson. Anyway, yeah, she was so amazing. So we, we were able to actually meet and talk to them. Um, so that was kind of an amazing experience. And um, so, yeah, it just came out it, uh, in February. It just came out streaming. And, and uh, so we got some pretty good feedback. Yeah, they that. licensed our song, Did For You, because, uh, you know, the movie just talks about the consequences of your actions and mm-hmm. how you have to deal with them. And It's about an adult film yeah, actor exactly. coming back right. to his hometown. And he's right. got to deal with everything that he's done. Mm-hmm. And they picked the song because it's all about, you know, everything I did wrong, I did for you. That's that character. He's very much just, I didn't do anything. Did it for you. So that's why they picked the song, and we're pretty proud of it. But um, You said the movie I, was really good, too. The movie was really good, and I was actually in the theater with Sean and was able to go, 
that's our song. And he was like, what? It's in there for like four seconds or something, but I picked it out like a baby penguin on a beach. Wow. We're in the end credits. So We're in the end credits. It's like, take the win. So what are other things you're working on? Because you, you've have you've put out some fairly elaborate music videos too, right? I mean, I think the last time I might have talked to you, you'd, you'd finished uh, producing a video for Nova. Do you have any other videos coming up? Honestly, we've been working on a ton of original music. We're mm-hmm. uh, very hopeful to put out another I don't want to jinx it, but I want to put it. We want to put another album yeah. out this year, mm-hmm. and that was one of the songs we just did. So that was that's going to be on the new uh, album. And cool. And and you've been playing that on when you've been touring. Um, we yes. did play that one on, when we we're touring. Actually, there's a couple of other new ones we've been playing uh, more recently, and then we've got four or five that are in the works right now. Um, and and then for the opportunities to play like Sea World and all of that, we've uh, we've added to our cover repertoire. So. Man, if you need a if you need a band for six hours, come see me at home. <laughs> but, so speaking of a band, uh, we're actually we got our first opening slot for mm-hmm. a major act called Balsam Range, and they are a major award winning bluegrass, just amazing musicians, wonderful folks, and we're we're actually opening for them on March twenty sixth. It's this Saturday. Uh, it's this Saturday, and they told us to get our best like songs get everything and uh we're super excited because that's a first for us we haven't cracked the national like hey you're the opening band like you know i thought of that i think i came up with one other Willie Nelson's granddaughter we opened for a couple years ago. So this is this is like we're coming back. We did. (laughs) So that was what was her name? Raylan. Raylan. Raylan's awesome. So she was wonderful. So that's a but maybe it's a second for us then. Mm -hmm. So that's the that's the Saturday. So you can get tickets. Uh, You just go to our. I think we've got a link on our on our our new website. It's uh, bmoband.com, and you can get to the Balsam Range. And we've got. Uh, another so we were doing Celtic a lot of Celtic hmm. so we've got a we're doing Tartan Day uh, which is for the St Andrews Celtic Society and that's also on our website and it's like we're just getting these shows that are getting bigger and bigger and bigger and it's uh, yeah and we're still sticking around our home base at Fiddler's Green we'll be there as well yep. this month and then Rock Pit Brewing I think we're hitting there and so you get the drift we're trying to do the large ones but then the small ones so you, but mm-hmm. um, you know some are free and some aren't and mostly on our website so you can see it. Probably the first time I talked to you guys, uh, it was part of a show we were doing kind of looking at the Orlando music scene and you were just talking about getting started or or, or bursting in as a as an Americana band and the sort of surge and in interest in that. Is that still there? Like are people still into that kind of music? Yeah, I think it's something that um... – I think it's kind of an appeal that's sort of universal because we, we get that a lot from, you know, we're sort of um, – I think our genre is rather inoffensive and I mean that in a good way. Um, I, you know, we get lots of people who, who say like, you know, I'm a metalhead and I like your band or, you know, so I think we have enough appeal. Well, I mean, Sean's a metalhead. Sean so is a metalhead. I, think they can, I am also a metalhead. I think they can, <laughs> I think they can sense that looking at Sean. <laughs> I do. Um, so maybe, maybe – never mind. Maybe it's just Sean. I'm maybe offended. it's just Sean's appeal. That he puts up metalhead pheromones. But um, in general, yeah, I think, I think the appeal is still there and um, we're trying to just keep going with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, there's definitely like a Florida kind of sound that we've kind of tapped into a little bit. There's a little bit of bluegrass, a little bit of folk rock. So I think just in just that Florida kind of vibe in general – so, what do you think's next? You, I mean, it sounds like you're very busy. We so, are. We are getting busy. I yes. mean, um, like I said, we've got several shows coming up this month. Um, we're starting to book into May and even opportunities into June, July, and I think we've even got a show all the way out in October. October. And yeah. we can't say which one yet, yet because yeah. they want to announce it. So, but um, with we, the new music, 
Yes. All, all our all our quarantunes, you're right, when we were all kind of – that was – Matt dubbed that, and so we have a quarantunes folder, and, and we put all our ideas in there, and now we're starting to put those together. So we're actually up to about 11 mm-hmm. new songs, and, and I think we still got a couple more that we could throw in there, but uh, yeah, we're, gonna we're starting to, to put those together. So the pandemic down, was, really. was time to be creative for you all? For me and for everybody, I was just on creative overdrive, so mm-hmm. I just kept writing and writing. Well, look, it's been a real pleasure talking to you all over the years and listening to your music and kind of hearing about your adventures. So I want to thank you for coming back and playing a one last show for Intersection. Sean Patrick Quinn, Matt Giuliano, Tony Mickle, and Dan Harshbarger, and, of course, Justin Braun. We miss we, you, JB. Yeah. <laughs> thank you all. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. We miss, we'll miss, we'll we'll miss, miss you. you. Good luck. Good luck. Thanks. Breaks the leg. And here's BMO with one last song to play on the way out. So this one's a song called Back Again. Matt wrote this one years ago, and, and honestly, it's it's what we close out pretty much every set with, and it's called Back Again. I would say the terms of, of the song themselves, of the people in the song, is, I don't know, a little little it, offy. Now I'm embracing for goodbye. Yeah, now, yeah. But in this case, we're dedicating to the this one to you, Mr. Yes, Petty. Yes, it's dedicated and, to um, Mr. Matthew Petty. And uh, we are embracing for goodbye. Written by Matthew Giuliano. So <laughs> Matt to Matt. I like it. Matt to Matt. All right. Can't go wrong. Sounds good. <laughs> Support for Intersection comes from our listeners. Editorial guidance from Latoya Dennis. Our intern is Allegra Montesano. Intersection goes on hiatus next week, and you'll hear the takeaway in its place. It's been a privilege to report on the stories of Central Florida and to serve as the host of Intersection. Thanks to my colleagues here at WMFE, and thank you for listening. The last goodbye is looming now. The sun is going down. David off somehow and we're all stalling now and we can't go back again now I'm pressing for goodbye the moon is on the rise and the tears are in our eyes hey Yes. And this is the last round, but we can't go back again.